Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Are you a scholar, journalist or writer focused on Palestine? Contribute to the foremost journal on the past, present and future of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem Quarterly is soliciting articles for peer review, essays and letters from Jerusalem. Send your work to jq at palestine-studies.org or see palestine-studies.org forward slash journals for more info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Professor Beatrice Saint-Laurent. Beatrice is currently professor at Bridgewater State University, is an expert of early Islamic Jerusalem. So today we're going to talk about extensively about the early Islamic Jerusalem, particularly of the period of Mu'ayya, so the early 7th century. And we're going to focus on a very important building in Jerusalem, a building that we only discussed a few times here and there throughout the podcast, but today we're definitely going to get a lot more details. The Dome of the Rock. But first of all, Beatrice, welcome. Thank you. (laughs) So Beatrice, the first question I want to ask is, you've been working on Jerusalem for quite some time, I would say, and I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about your work, your background, and also how you came to work on Jerusalem? Well, your introduction places me as a specialist of early Islamic Jerusalem. In fact, I am not the uh, specialist of early Islamic Jerusalem. I began my uh, career as an Ottomanist of the late 19th and early 20th century, writing a PhD thesis on the city of Bursa in Turkey, and um, came to Jerusalem to work on the tiles of the Dome of the Rock, because I knew that the Armenian tile makers had moved from Kutahia to Jerusalem. And that is how I arrived in Jerusalem in 1990. And I have been stuck in Jerusalem since 1990. (laughs) Though the Turks keep coming to find me um, to do articles on Bursa and other related topics to Turkey, notably recently on photography, which I am also a specialist of. Now, the work I began in the 90s when I lived in Jerusalem for three years was on the um, Ottoman restorations of the Dome of the Rock from the 16th century to the early 20th century. All of that work has been published, and I've not been working on that for a long time. I was lucky to be in Jerusalem when the Dome of the Rock was regilt by the uh, uh, the Jordanian uh, king in 1993-1994, and I was already working with the Al-Kaf authorities 
um, in the Ottoman archives up there at the, at the Haram. I was privileged to be working with the, both the director of the museum, Khadr Salame, and uh, Isam Awad, who was the chief architect and conservator of the monuments of the Haram. Um, I give you this background because what I have ended up doing is having a collaborative relationship with Isam Awad for th over 30 years. Um, he was the chief architect and conservator from 1974 to, no, 1972 to 2004 when he retired. Um, this has, and he is my co-author on, on most of the publications on the early, Islam, on early Islamic Jerusalem. So um, he has been the one to provide me with access to all of the material and most notably to the site. Um, as you probably know, the, the access to the site is very difficult to do any kind of professional work. And that's not just from one side, that's from both sides, both the Palestinian, Jordanian and the Israeli side to uh, have access to the place. People question you constantly. So that is how I began life. Uh, in 2010, I was approached by uh, Isam to help publish, to, to publish. I would be an historian. He is the architect with 32 years of experience on the site. And the, the project on 7th century Jerusalem began in 2012 when we started corresponding and discussing the um, Solomon Stables as the first mosque of Jerusalem, which was first published in Jerusalem Quarterly uh, in 2013. So uh, we then, I then sh we then shifted our attention to the other monuments at the site. I had worked on the tile restorations of the Dome of the Rock, which was, which became a focus and I have become a specialist of the tiles of the Dome of the Rock. But working on the earlier period of the Dome um, has been very interesting because it's an overly published book. It is uh, a, top, a book topic for many, many people as far as I'm concerned. And uh, what I've had to wade through is a lot of research that has been done from abroad, but not really interacting with the building itself to find answers or having access to absolutely essential sources that are needed to find out more information about the building's original situation. I don't know if this gives you enough background information. Um, I have been provided access with that information. Documents were taken out of the Haram scanned or photocopied um, extensively for a period of about five years. Unfortunately, my colleague, co-author, and close friend died in the summer of 2018, uh, six months after we signed a book contract to write on 7th century Jerusalem. So I have become responsible for the 7th century book. I want to talk about uh, the Aram al-Sharif and Dome of the Rock later, but first I want to ask you a question. So you already mentioned that you're interested in observing Islamic art and archaeology. Can you tell us about the challenges of these fields in Jerusalem? Because to me, it looks like they're different from, let's say, working on, uh, you know, same similar topics, for instance, uh, in Rome or Naples or 
you know, other famous archaeological sites uh, throughout the world? The difficulties of working in Jerusalem, particularly on this site, first, it has become a symbol for the political activities of many uh, and not restricted to one people. The politics interfere in access to information and one has to be very persistent and work very quietly. Uh, in in situations like this. Um, I think I have been fortunate to work with the person that has the access. As I have explained to others, we've been, we worked underground for 30 years on material that now can come out in public. Um, we're coming out from under the capital R rock, so to speak, uh, with our research. Um, and it will be um, published in this book. But the difficulties, yeah, I as a foreigner have to enter the site from the public entrance. There was a moment in the 90s when I was working in Jerusalem, and even in the um, 2007, 2008, 2009, I actually had a little Alkaf ID. Um, of, uh, that I could enter with. And there was a picture of me giving me permission from the Alcaf. And the Dome of the Rock sort of sat on my head. <laughs> um, it was a very interesting time period to have access. I could access from, from the Medjlis Gate, and I didn't have to go through the, um, the Mugdabi Gate. Uh, but that all ended at, at a certain point, and I only could access through... Um, through the, through the Maghribi Gate in the south entrance where foreigners are allowed to enter. Um, I also became the person in, at the Albright, which is the American school uh, for archeological research where I reside and am a fellow or when I'm in Jerusalem. I became the one responsible to give tours of the Haram Sharif, of the Islamic period monuments and uh, we'd be given trouble accessing the site through the Maghrebi gate <laughs> um, because we were archaeologists or so, so they say, well, I should define that. <laughs> um, I'm not an archaeologist. I am a trained art historian with a PhD in Islamic art, art and architecture from Harvard University. However, my work in Jerusalem has redefined who I am. The work has to be by definition of their archaeological in terms of research. So I don't even participate in art historical conferences anymore. It's all archaeological conferences. Uh, maybe a little anecdotal story you might find interesting. Um, I participated in a conference at Tel Aviv University, which was a, com a combined um, conference between the history department and the archaeology department. Yuval Gadot. Um, invited me to join this conference, but it was chaired by someone in the history department. And when I indicated that it was difficult to work um, on the site, he said, oh, well, yeah, the Israelis give you trouble. I said, no, no, it's, well, yeah, we do have interference trying to enter the site from the Israeli authorities and being questioned, but also Palestinian authorities as well. <laughs> I said, that's equally, a, probably even a bigger problem to gain access to the buildings. And I'm working with you know, one of the Palestinian architects in charge. And I said, 
Even more disturbing is wading through a hundred years of research and sorting the politics out from biblical archeology span and its relationship to the site and contemporary politics as they're defined. He stopped talking <laughs> so that it, it is, you know, it is wading through a hundred years of scholarship and research that has cast the site content in politics of whatever period. So there's that. <laughs> Let me move uh, uh, sort of uh, to main object of your work, which is the Dome of the Rock. Now, the Dome of the Rock is like a very famous and I would say an uh, iconic uh, sort of image of Jerusalem. In fact, it really defines Jerusalem uh, in many ways. Uh, so I, I was wondering if we can start just discussing uh, the structure, its purpose, and perhaps a little bit of a, its history. Um, I should say that I am basically continuing the work on the Dome of the Rock that was begun by my PhD advisor at Harvard University, Oleg Grabar. Um, he, he really did successfully achieve uh, much positive um, research on the site. What has happened with my work is that um, I started to ask questions within the context of the research on the dome itself. If you start looking at the research, and I'm sitting surrounded here by about 100 books because I'm writing the chapter on the Dome of the Rock at the moment. <clears throat> and what I've had to do is to abstract myself away from the research and say, let the building talk for itself. That said, I have access to documents and sources that others have not had. And that has facilitated much of the work I've been able to do. I'll address the problems with the, that I encountered the re, with the research with two questions that I found went unanswered with the dome. The dome is considered to have the form in most research of the octagonal Byzantine church, which is prominent in the region. And these are commemorative churches. We have multiple churches that, uh, we have two churches that surround rocks. We have the Church of the Ascension uh, on the Mount of Olives surrounding a rock, which supposedly has the footprint of Christ ascending to heaven. We have the Katisma church that was found in the early 90s when I was living in Jerusalem which is a commemorative church built uh, for Mary surrounding a rock where she supposedly stopped to pray on her way to Bethlehem. Um, a, a mihrab was added to that church in the seventh century. Uh, and the archeologist said it was converted to a mosque. Well, no, it's a commemorative church, so it's not a congregational church, nor was it ever used as a mosque. Um, the two questions I, I posed was we have a building that has the form of a Byzantine church and it has a fully mosaic covered exterior in the seventh and eighth in the seventh and early eighth century, right through to the uh, Ottoman period in the 16th century. It's covered exteriorly with mosaics. There's not one Byzantine church that has exterior colorful mosaics. 
in the region. The dome has um, four entrances from the cardinal points. No church has <laughs> entrances from the cardinal points. And why were these questions not asked and addressed? Because nobody had the answers. <laughs> so I started to look for the questions that had no answers and started chasing them down. Um, the other issue that one first has to address is that a lot of researchers, those notably not dealing with the Islamic period, like to call it a mosque. Well, it's not a mosque. It's a commemorative structure. Its form is dictated as a commemorative structure. And um, first I should go to the I, to the inter I won't go to the interpretation yet because I think that's better left till the end to address those questions. And everybody was everybody always asks says okay the building was built on top of a upper platform, platform had to be built before the building was built. As I researched, I started asking questions. Why did there need to be a platform? And um, as I dragged myself through the texts and through the documents, I began to realize that there really was no need for a platform in the seventh century. And why was there no need? Well, if one looks at the topography of the site, one sees that it's flat there. And the other reason that the, que the question came to my mind was that we have the Kubata Silsila, the Dome of the Chain, which sits right next to the dome. And when Isam and I would talk about this, he kept saying, why is that building so close to the entrance? It makes no sense. It makes no sense, you know, arch you know, architecturally. And it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense, which pushed us to continue to ask the question about the platform. And there's a text, and it's cited by many people, that the Dome of the Chain sat at the edge of the rock. If it sat at the edge of the rock, how did you know that if there was a platform? <laughs> it makes no sense. So then I started saying, okay, well, let's go with the premise that there was no platform. Eventually, I found um, enough proof to show that the platform was probably built in the Abbasid era, including inscriptions. This is never, this is not yet published. This is in the book. We have an inscription on top of the north column of the central west arcade uh, mawazin, or called scales uh, in Arabic, um, that says this, this, Makam and this mo this mizan was restored in the early 10th century by so and so, which means that it was already there, but that the arches were added. So I had to say, okay, we had four of these that were there, demarcating a certain area, physical area, uh, of the site. Um, I have a purpose in saying this at the moment, but then I could then go back into the textual sources and realize that the um, platform that Nasri Husra saw was that early Abbasid platform. 
which stayed there until uh, the Ayyubid period. It was expanded in the Ayyubid period, and I won't give you the details on that because it's not, it's not necessary. But we have textual evidence and physical evidence to prove that the platform was um, added to multiple times. So I went with the premise that the Dome of the Chain and the Dome of the Rock sat on the rock, on the bedrock. I thought, well, how am I going to get evidence for this? (laughs) Well, I happen to be fortunate enough, and the piece of evidence that I have is a four-volume record of the 1960s, what I am calling renovation of the site by the the Egyptian restoration sponsored by the Jordanians in the 1960s in Arabic. Um, Isam and I spent f- three years translating all the documents that were made available to me. And uh, there are photographic records in black and white that live up there at the Haram. And I found a picture of the, um, when they were doing the renovation, they dug out around the foundations of the building. Uh, because the building supposedly, well, I won't go into the, why I call it a renovation and not a restoration, but a lot of concrete was used, let's put it that way. Um, As they dug out, there were pictures taken, and I have a photograph or two that show the original stones of construction of the octagonal portion of the building that go down to the bedrock, one meter down. So I'm still documenting other sites around the, the building, which I will be, that's what I'm working on. That's why I'm still working on the chapter. But they also did um, some digging inside the building. They lifted the floor inside the dome and they dug down around all of the piers and columns to quote, reinforce them. But what they showed was that the columns go down and sit on a large stone directly on the bedrock, 0.9 meters down, that's just on one of the columns. And that 0.6 meters down, there's an earlier pavement. So this physical evidence is there. We have a building that sat on bedrock. I, you know, We have enough evidence to say that that's there. And one can either call that poor archaeological technique, but archaeological evidence no matter what. So that is the premise. The building was there. The stone that's used is very much, um, in 2007, when I was inside the building, I, um, they, would take, they had taken all the marble off um, the interior uh, once, one side at a time, and it revealed this, the stonework so that I could see the shape of the stones, the size of the stones, and very much Umayyad stone period um, stuff (laughs) that's there. Um, A colleague from Hebrew University sent me pictures that she had taken from the inside showing that the windows were bigger (laughs) and that they were, you know, the windows were all open at some point and they were probably marble grills reflecting the light on the interior. So I think what you can see that I'm saying is that I'm using the building itself and that requires presence. You have to have access to be able to use 
any kind of monument um, as testimony. I know there have been lots of people, what's his name, Greenhalgh, who writes a lot on spolia. He has said, you know, it's not Greenhalgh, it's somebody else, it's an Italian author whose name escapes me completely, that you need to let the building talk in the time period that it was built, which is basically what I've determined as my goal for this book in, in its entirety. Um, and I know you've read my article on Spolia where I cite all of this. So uh, this is my methodology is to is to let the building speak. I have a question about uh, sort of the common chronology of, of the area and the building itself. So I guess, you know, opening Wikipedia or any history textbook taught in college, uh, I would say you normally look at uh, the Arama Sharif of uh, Temple Mount, depending again the point of view and religion, but I think it's not relevant to go there. But certainly, you know, the chronology is that, well, the Romans, um, so first century, raised to the ground the area. And then it's safe to say that they built perhaps something on top, uh, maybe temples. Uh, certainly the Byzantine built something on top of that. So I was wondering what, exactly, because, you know, this is, sort of the chronology, normally they tell you, well, these are Byzantine arches, but now it seems that you're suggesting actually there was nothing Byzantine there. So I was wondering, what do we know about this uh, period in between? So the first century to the seventh century, what was there? What was there? That's a good question. That, that's a, there's a long answer for that. But I think what one has to say is that you have the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. You have the Romans returning, and I think the current thought, and this is this is not my field, is that this was a, was revered as a space that was sacred, but there's no evidence of that temple that was built up there. And I think, um, uh, oh, what's her name? Wexler Badola has done quite a bit of work on that, and she participated in a conference that we organized at Providence College in 2017 with her work, but. And, you know, they found the, you know, the fallen stones along the Western wall that said that there was construction from that late Roman period. Um, it was used as a stone quarry, <laughs> I think, for the late Roman period, for the Byzantine period. And it was with the return. And, and of course, you have the intervening period where the Sasanians, the Persians, invaded and you know the the level of destruction is now questionable according to the archaeological record i think i think more survived than a lot of the christian sources give credit um the archaeological record is proving otherwise um but it was the, when the muslims returned um when the muslims arrived the site was destroyed and um elat mazar has done a book a two volume set on the walls of the uh, temple mount and it's very interesting. I thought I was going to encounter problems when I started examining the book. And I, I think I'll eventually review it as the Islamic scholar, because I give her a lot of credit for the work she did. She basically showed in Muawiyah period rebuilding of the walls. The south wall was basically very much destroyed uh, with remnants of the triple gate, double gate, and if one looks at the level where Muawiyah's walls are built, 
it's right over the Herodians' uh, remains. And um, he established the footprint of the Haram Sharif directly over the Herodian precinct using some of the entrances, the first two entrances that were rebuilt with a triple gate and the double gate, which already existed in, in some form. We know that, um, well, Mayor Bendov certainly has done the uh, excavations on that, and I've met with him multiple times with Isam uh, discussing their find. Th those two worked together during this period, so it was, you know, all right, I, I let you open this, this, this channel, and I, then we plugged it up, and, you know, this kind of, it was fascinating listening to the two of them talk, but the, the two gates were rebuilt because the resident... Christian, Jewish, and Muslim population entered from the south. That was the way you got in. The main entrance of the city was the Golden Gate, which had been originally built by Heraclius when he returned the, uh, the, the relic of the cross after the Sasanians were captured, were finished, <laughs> and taken out of there. Uh, in six, was it 630, I think, is the date. The Byzantine, yeah, that's the date. And um, the Umayyads rebuilt the gate uh, as the ceremonial entrance to both the mosque and to the site. And it was the east and main entrance to the city at the time. So we have that footprint. And I will add, I have encountered a great deal of conflict from um, the Muslim side and contemporarily saying there was no temple, uh, which is current in the politics of today, but it certainly is clear. Michael Burgoyne proved you know, that there's evidence of Umayyad construction in many of the extant gates. So that was clear. Um, but the site was used as a quarry. It makes sense. You know. And I, at our conference in Providence in 2017, um, uh, Jody Magnus was speaking, and I had brought Ansari Nuseba as the Islamic plenary speaker and there's, there's this discussion that the Muslims destroyed, the, the, the implication from one side is that the Muslims destroyed the site, but there's hundreds of years that intervened. So one has to factor what happened to the materials that were up there. Some certainly remained. We know that the Herodian stones were used in the building of the first mosque, which we're saying is in Solomon's stables in the Marwani Musalla today, um, there were certainly some remains that, that were there. And um, on one wall of the dome, I have been able to see in a 19th century photograph of the Ecole Biblique that they did use some spolia remains in the building of the dome. Um, does this, I'm trying to keep this as archaeologically focused as I can, because I think though politics affects the research, it doesn't dictate it, is really where I want to stay. Um, does that partially answer? It does, and, and I agree that uh, obviously the, the politics of the site is different from the archaeological history of the site itself. They're, they're very different. And you also reminded me that... Uh, it makes sense that it was used as a quarry because, you know, when I think about the city of Rome itself, upon the collapse of uh, Roman institutions, uh, you know, people just began to quarry from uh, from the Colosseum uh, to the Forum and all of the surrounding buildings 
been built with the same material. So it makes perfectly sense. It does. It does make perfect sense. But maybe I will address politics at another level. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of deniability that Muawiyah had any influence on the site at all because there's no records. And um, I'm sure you're aware of the Hagarism denial of the validity of usage of early Islamic sources, um, a book published in, in 1977. So why do we have no information about Muawiyah? Because they were written out of the histories that were written in the 10th century by the Abbasids. Historical deniability. So contemporary politics, yes, being used to write someone out of history. Um, and that is a continued feature of the site. I will address, um, I'll go to more modern scholarship from 1980, Shlomo Goitin, using the Geniza documents, um, actually posited that Muawiyah had built the dome of the, had built the dome of the rock and gave multiple reasons for that from his sources in the Geniza. Um, in 1988, my advisor, in, actually earlier, I think it was 1987, he gave a lecture at Oxford where he also supported that argument that Muawiyah built the Dome of the Rock, giving very strong supporting reasons for that. And um, suddenly, after the 1989 publication, of uh, Miriam Rosen Ayalon's support of Abdel Malik as the um, found, as the creator of the Dome of the Rock, um, Oleg's support of, of Muawiyah diminished to being cited in footnotes, <laughs> and I think you can see where the contemporary politics take that. Um, I mean, we also have even today. I mean, I. A journalist contacted me who's writing an article for National Geographic, and I'm working with National Geo's graphics team to, to work on that article. But he said, gee, what do you think of this, of um, um, Moshe Sharon's view that the Dome of the Rock was uh, a mosque, was a, a Byzantine church? And I thought, what have I not found? Well, he stated this as recently as 2015, even with all the research published. So when people have a nationalist or imperial agenda from any side, <laughs> I think you can manipulate the facts and the, and the, and the history that preceded. Um, one of the questions that I had about the dome. Why would it be Abdel Malik? Okay, you have an interior Kufic inscription dated 691, 692. The date of the completion, obviously, it didn't say whether it's beginning completion. What the text does read is that, um, you know, so-and-so built the Kubba, Binat al-Kubba in in such a year. Well, all researchers have said, well, first of all, the name of the person was removed and replaced with Al-Matmun, who was the Abbasid ruler of um, the region between 813 and, 18, and 833. So the assumption is, okay, 
Abdel Malik's name fits in there, so it has to be Abdel Malik. Well, you can't document that, so you can make you can assume or suggest that it was his name that was there, but you can't definitively say it. And everybody looks and says, "Well, how? Can, why not? Well, it's not there. <laughs> it's not physically present." And dome, Kubba, is that capital D dome, small D dome. Most inscriptions that, that are dated in these buildings date something that was completed or built or restored. So the building was begun, had to have been begun earlier. Why would you give the finished date? So I, I started pushing that harder and harder and harder. And then I thought, El Matmoon, why is his name there? Well, he conquered. This is the thing of conquest. And that was, you know, Abdel Malik codifying Islam, denying the sort of openness of the Muawiyah regime and codifying it and saying, you know, we can't, we, we're going to, we're going to make the dimmies, the, the, the lower classes within society, which did not exist before Abdel Malik. So once I got there and I started thinking, all right, the dome. So why is Al Matmoon's name there? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna accept that it's conquest. Lo and behold, he became ruler 813, and I stumbled across somebody doing research on earthquakes in Jerusalem. There was a major earthquake in Jerusalem in 808, and it. It was reported that many of the buildings of, quote, Al-Aqsa were heavily damaged. And I thought, ha, huh, okay, here's a restoration by El Matmoon. Sure, he wants his name there. Because, you know, you earn your points for the hereafter. But that's not the reason that inscription is there. The other two, ins the other inscriptions that show up in the dome itself document restorations of mosaics and of the ceiling. The entire dome fell in in um, 1002 with an earthquake. So we know here we have another earthquake. So I'm starting to think of these inscriptions as being documents of building and rebuilding. So we know that we now know that Al Matmoon sort of rebuilt it. And then I started thinking, okay, I did a major dig into the mosaics and their production for a conference in Jericho back in 2016. And I went back and read all the stuff by Marguerite van Bersham uh, on her expertise on the mosaics. And I first published in 1932 and republished in 69 in, Cres like in the Cresswell volumes. And if you stick to the 32, you never hear what happened when she continued her research. Um, the uh, techniques, she looks at the techniques of mosaic done in multiple periods and the early ones have a defined technique of if you have these floral patterns the exterior surrounding most you know, tesserae follow the pattern in the later mosaics that disappears you have black outlines and then you have the stacked little tesserae around them in a very linear fashion and this, this happened this week. I said, well, wait a minute. I'm going to look at how the mosaics are done in this inscription. And um, I called my friend Saeed Nuseba, who photographed the interior, the, the interior, all the interior mosaics and published a wonderful book with my, with my 
advisor Oleg Grabar, and I said, I need you to look <laughs> at your more detailed photographs. I said, that inscription, I think, was added on top of the mosaics that were built, that were made earlier, because the little tesserae are all stacked. They don't follow the angles of the words. And I think we found some verification. And in the um, circular arcade, the mosaics appear in the spandrels, but I'm, there's nothing, you can't see. The Ottomans had put a wooden cornice so you can't see what's behind. I said, look and see if you have any details that show if there was any inscription above that. And I started asking those questions because Marguerite van Bersham went to Cairo to see if she could find the color pictures, which I looked for in Amman in the Aukaf. And she interviewed the engineer who was in charge of the renovation. And he said he had gone through and changed the orthography of the early Arabic because it was incorrect. <laughs> and he changed the mosaics and added diacritical marks. And I thought, oh my goodness. Uh, here we have some very strange things going on in the building, okay? So one has to document it this way. <laughs> you have to find the problems. Now, let me take you somewhere else. So where did you have a polygonal building with colorful exteriors? You had polygonal buildings with colorful exteriors, and I'm very thankful to my colleague as a graduate student, Nuha Huri, for writing an article on uh, Gumdan and the Dome of Iraq many years ago in 1993. There were palaces in Saudi Arabia prior to Islam. They were called mehrabs in Sabio-Hemuritic. So that is the word that enters Arabic as mihrab. Mihrab was originally not a niche in the wall <laughs> that faced Mecca. Mihrabs were the pre-Islamic palaces of the Sabians. There is an, a tradition. Uh, let's deal with the tradition in a minute. These pal palaces survived. The only the one, the Gumdan, the one in Sana'a in Yemen, was destroyed in the sixth century. Descriptions survive that it was a polygonal building, multicolored on the outside, and it had uh, a dome, and it had cardinal cardinal entrances from the four points, the four cardinal points. So here we have another model for the Dome of the Rock. Um, I know that there are others who have written, and it's valid, that the temple exterior was also colorful, but that is the one that's published. This one's not published yet, <laughs> um, but um, indeed we have the colorful exterior. Now, there's a, there's a an old tradition, and I, I don't know if it would officially be called a hadith, but it, it, there is a tradition that exists that in 630, the prophet um, asked his converted Sasanian governor to build his mo a mosque in his garden, in which he asked him to build, to include the two stones of a ritual 
ritual stone worship, which one also can tie to the Dome of the Rock, which has been done in the past. Um, but to attach on the east side the ruins of the Palace of Gumdan. So you have the attachment of pre-Islamic royal affiliation. There was a historian in the court of Muawiyah who said that he would inherit the legacy of the pre-Islamic kings. So here we go, bring that to Jerusalem. And now I'm gonna go back to Yemen again. There was a church just outside the walls of the great mosque of Sana'a. And I'm fortunate to have all of this information because Isam worked on the, the restoration of the great mosque of Sana'a for quite a few years, um, process which has obviously been stopped um, because of the troubles in Yemen. But the description of the church is that it had a large Iwan, very much in the Sasanian tradition, that was decorated with mosaics on the exterior. And those mosaics were described as trees and foliate motifs. Think of the interior mosaics of the Dome of the Rock, apply that to the exterior. These mosaics were moved in 684 to the Kaaba in Mecca. So the use of mosaics did not necessarily come from those Byzantines that everybody wants to say they brought them from Constantinople. But the other person who put me in touch with the Sasanians as the originators of mosaics was Stephen Fine, who teaches at Yeshiva University in New York City. We were on sabbatical at the same time in 2016. He says, you've got to go find the remnants of the mosaics from Ketesiphon, the Sasanian palace of Ketesiphon. Um, in, the, in the Metropolitan Museum. Lo and behold, the same technique, these wandering little tesserae. So, uh, and we have no other mosaics of the same quality as in the Dome of the Rock, in the region of the Dome of the Rock. So it, it is probably Sasanian craftsmen, either from the South or from the East. Persian craftsmen who probably you know, were in charge of the mosaics. Um, does that help answer some of those questions? There are other Sasanian connections, obviously. It does. And in fact, it just made me think that whatever I knew about the Dome of the Rock has been somehow demolished, I would say. Literally, I mean, I go mostly with the most common narratives like, uh, you know, the Muslims have arrived. And of course, you have these uh, new buildings emerging, which... Uh, somehow uh, represented also Islamic power. Uh, and one thing that it remains uh, obviously and probably not yet clear is, is the fact that we don't really know much about the purpose of it, right? It was not a mosque, that's clear. Uh, so what was that? Okay. Let's, first, let's, let's, let's preface this with I've already mentioned the change of policies under Abdel Malik, but the policies before under Muawiyah are recorded in Christian texts. It was a period of inclusivity um, of the religions of the book and others. This is documented in the Quran, all right? Um, and this would include, and we also know that the mosaics of the lower area are the ones that remain original. Uh, to some extent, and they have the crowns of the Byzantine and Sasanian 
empires. I think there's probably one in there for the pre-Islamic kings, but I haven't found it yet. <laughs> um, but I, it, what is determined in this period, the Christian texts say this was a time of peace and equal interaction. And that is true because he never took the title of Khalif. He was the Amir al-Muminin, the Amir of the, the, the believers. And who were the believers? The people of the Ahl al-Kitab, the people of the book. And so they were on an equal footing. So where could they come in the city? They couldn't come to the mosque and the dictates of building mosques as in the southeast corner, the, the, the Marwani, uh, were that it had to be a simple building, had to be a very simple building. And um, you couldn't have all this decoration, and indeed it doesn't. But that wasn't dictated for any other building. And um, Oleg, in his PhD thesis, did a whole bunch of research on Muawiyah and his uh, audiences. And um, what I can't remember his name, but Marsham did a whole book in the UK. He was at Edinburgh. He did a book on the, the um, ceremony around early Umayyads. And he did it as well. And there's a young scholar who's now at Kansas. Her name is Heba Mustafa, who's collated a lot of this textual material. <clears throat> and there's... Um, the audiences for Muslims were held in the mosque. And where were the other audiences held? In the palaces throughout the realm in that early time period. Well, the palace was not very accessible uh, in Muawiyah's period. And where did he hold audiences in Damascus? But under the Hadra, the green dome, which was the palace attached to the enclosure of what is now the great mosque of Damascus. So where do we have a dumb structure where he could hold audiences with other people? They even, they even used different thrones, different seats that were that, that for the two places. He could hold audiences for those people in the dome of the chain. The dome structure that sits with undefined purpose <laughs> beside the dome of the rock. And the space was defined by four groups of peers that are called mawazin or scales. And the scales in the Quran, the scales would come in place at the end of times. So in a scatological connection, but also a space that it was inclusive of other people. And there was no platform at the time. So what were those peers doing there? <laughs> Two of them we know date from the period of Muawiyah because they use Herodian stone. All right, so then what does the dome become? Let's turn to the Quran. In the Quran, Solomon had maharib or mihrabs, sanctuary spaces in the temple. David functioned in a mihrab in the temple. Mary lived in a mihrab in the temple for 20 years and was visited by Zachariah in the, te in the temple. It goes from there, and there are connections of the temple to the golden gate in the Quran, etc. So you have the ceremonial entrance, you can get there. But this space was reserved 
So we have this form of mihrab. So what's the mihrab in Yemen? It's the palace of the set of the pre-Islamic kings. So you have a commemorative building that commemorates the temple, doesn't rebuild it. It, it also addresses Christian relationships to it. And it addresses the, so the, the building as a sovereign monument dating from its origins in pre-Islamic times. And we know that the legacy was given to Muawiyah. You're getting this as first. Nobody has this information. <laughs> it's not published yet, but will be soon. <laughs> I don't know if this helps. Does that help? So you have, I can, I can go further. No, it does. And as we reach the end of our conversation, and you, I must say that you anticipated a lot of answers to questions I had, but you know, here we are. Um, you have an upcoming book, and the title of the book is Capitalizing Jerusalem, Muaya Urban Vision. So you spoke extensively about Muaya in relation to the dome, uh, but I was wondering, you know, if you can tell us a little bit more about the general urban vision. I mean, what was his idea of Jerusalem and about Jerusalem? It was supposed to be the capital. Um, Ben Dove found a wall just outside of the um, stables, what, is, what we're calling the mosque, and um, that's disappeared. But we also have the complex of buildings that's attributed to a later period called the Palace District, south of the Haram, that was excavated by Mazar and Ben Dove. And um, in 2016, I think it was, it was 2016, 17, somewhere in there, I was brought into a conversation about um, uh, excavations in, in building two, palace building two, um, which is the building that's designated as the palace that was either completed or built by, it wasn't ever completed, but built by Abdel Malik or Al-Walid that has that bridge connecting to the, to the Haram. And, um, they were going down below the floors. At the time, I didn't know that that had already been done by Ben Dove and already published that kind of work. And it had also been done by, is it Rani Reich and Yuval Baruch in, in building three, where they had found foundational material, foundational parts of the structure underneath, which resembled nothing else in the city. And I've been in touch with Jana Chekanovitz, who's a business, who's Byzantinist, who started the Givati parking lot excavations. So part of what I did with Moran Hagbi, who was in charge of this, he brought me into the building to show me what they were doing. And they, it showed a type of construction I had never seen and nobody else had ever seen, which is using slats of trees with cement as a foundation, partial foundational material. And I said, mm, I've never seen that before. And Yana said, mm, I've never seen that before. <laughs> and then he brought me across the street into the Gavati parking lot. Have you been in that excavation? Okay, you know there's a ramp as you go in. As you go around, before you take a left turn, there's a big thing covering something. In we went under the street. <laughs> and under the street, is exposed lower foundations uh, 
uh, of large stones with wood intervening. And um, they didn't know where it was coming. Obviously, that's why I was brought there. Have you seen this before? And I said, yeah, I've seen it before. Where have you seen it? I've seen it in the Palace of Sinabra, the Palace of Muawiyah built on the Sea of, on the, on the Kinneredo, the Sea of Galilee, whatever you want to call it, south of, um, on, on, the, on the west side, where it, they used to think it was a, a synagogue and Ronnie Reich disproved that and Don Whitcomb proved it was the palace of Muawiyah and it's continuing to be excavated by uh, Rafi Greenberg. And they have found a mosque, but part of the palace foundations are exactly the same as what I saw under that street. And it's also the same kind of construction that Mayor Ben Dove published. So we have a palace business and Don uh, sort of published one of the buildings as an administrative building and there's a bath. So we have the functioning, we have the functioning uh, realization of a capital city. And if one wants to push that just a tad bit further, it was not in Damascus that um, Muawiyah uh, became Amir al-Muminin. He became Amir al-Muminin in Jerusalem in his mosque. And why would he create, not have Jerusalem as a capital? We can push it just a little harder uh, because at that time, I think everybody that's published on this thinks of a capital as a fixed site. And several historians, and I think, is it, I can't think of it, I won't commit myself because I'm not quite, I can't remember quite where it came from, that the, uh, in the early, you have capitals being moved in the, uh, in the Muslim period. You had the, the winter residence in the hills and you had the summer palace of Sinabra. And why would you not have mobile capitals? Because that's how nomadic, the nomadic world functioned. So if you don't want to make it a fixed capital, you can make it one of the capitals of the seventh century, which makes perfect sense. I have a feeling that uh, tourist guides in the future, we'll have to change a lot of our narratives about uh, the area. I mean, I I'm sure it, it changed in the past few decades, but the sense is that more and more, you know, discoveries that are made sometimes because of uh, uh, political goals, like, uh, you know, in Israel, you keep, to you keep seeing uh, sites dig with the hope to find material connected to the ancient uh, uh, kingdom of Israel, then it turns out that uh, it's often connected to Byzantine churches and the Byzantine period. So it, there is a sense that those narratives are going to change anyway, one way or another. Well, they already are. They already are changing. I mean, was it just in the Agade list yesterday, what they thought was a, uh, a temple has, has ended up being a Roman building. Uh, this is just recently, uh, you know, this is happening. It's happening all the time, obviously. So the, the goal, if, if you have an open mind and you can change your mind, obviously this is, this is where this is headed in terms of research, but yes, this is happening. But I did get archeological experience. I dug at Tel Mikne, Ekron, with Trudy Dotan and Cy Gitten for two seasons. I, I did want archaeological experience and that did provide me with some. And they made me there uh, in, in, my, in my area of digging, I had to be the, um, 
the one who did all the, the drawings because my my undergrad degree is in studio art. I was a painter. <laughs> and yeah, so my my credentials are a little broad for the topic that I work on, <laughs> starting as an artist, dealing with Ottoman history for most of my, well, for the first uh, 12, 10, 20 years, uh, dealing with the Ottomans. And then suddenly I find myself in the seventh century. Mystery of lives. But I have one last question, and it's a very practical one. Was the dome always made of gold? No, no, absolutely not. Um, one, I, and I don't have the dictionary in front of me. I don't have my there in front of me. It was described as golden in the early sources. Well, gold and copper are about the same. All right. So my speculation is, is that it had a copper dome and that the outside dome was already finished when, when Abdel Malik came into the picture because they built buildings from the outside in. And then um, as it, when it was destroyed in the Fatimid period, it was restored to lead. It became a lead dome and it remained lead, black lead, until the 1960s. And in the 1960s, um, yellow anodized aluminum plates were put in place. So not gold, gold colored, because the gold color became a symbol of the Dome of the Rock. For, it became a symbol of Jerusalem. And I know in the 90s when I was there, I was on the dome documenting the re, the guilt, the, re, the, the new dome. Isam had me climbing ladders where I never thought I could possibly get. But I, uh, I, I ended up documenting that with, uh, with my own imagery. Um, those were um, corrective measures taken. The, the, uh, the 1960s had put aluminum ribs in the dome and um, the 1990s restoration went back to wood that was imported from Africa and they covered them with bra um, brass plates that were uh, plated gold, two microns thick. And the uh, Belfast Irish team was in residence and allowed me to document that whole process, which was fascinating. They had just come from Baghdad from doing one of the domes in Iraq. And uh, that was also reflective of politics, if you want to think about it, because Patrick, who was in charge of it, was um, was Ca Irish Catholic in charge of a Belfast um, Irish Protestant team. <laughs> and the political discussions around that were pretty interesting during the whole time. But that it, it was restored to gold in the 1990s. It has become gold. And it was too bright when they put it up that you couldn't look at it. They had to dim it. It, you you just couldn't look at it when the sun hit it. It was it was really interesting to see how they had to change it. But yeah, it did become gold. So that was in 1993, and the interior mosaics were last restored in 2007. The drum mosaics were restored in 2007. I was not able to document that, but I do have the the information. This was Professor Beatrice Saint Laurent, currently a professor at. Uh, uh, Bridgewater State University, and author of an upcoming book, Capitalizing Jerusalem, Moyer's Urban Vision, 638 to 680. Beatrice, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. 
To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.